our church has been doing this teaching series on this somewhat obscure book in the Old Testament. The name of it's Ecclesiastes. And I have joked uh, through the weeks, hey, start looking for it now, and by the time I'm done, maybe you'll find it. It's kind of like buried in the Old Testament. But it's a, it's a book that is profound in its um, realism. It's profound in how it describes life in this world in very sort of real and gritty kind of ways. Uh, you may have trouble finding it, but you, the, the meaning is not hard to find. Here's some examples of what Ecclesiastes says. It describes life in this world this way. It feels empty. It feels like I'm chasing the wind. Does that sound familiar, maybe? Resonate with you a little bit? It feels like I never have enough. I always want more and more and more. Can you relate to that? It, thank you. It feels... It feels like, now what's funny about that is he's like five, I'm guessing, from here, already uh, dealing with dissatisfaction in life. He says, it feels like I'm working myself to death. Ever feel that way on a Monday morning, back to work, here I go, work, 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 work. What's the point of all of this? Why am I doing all of this? And the author is the famous king of Israel, Solomon. And uh, if you know anything about Solomon, maybe you've heard about his wisdom. Indeed, he was a very wise man, very insightful about life. In fact, there's a whole other book of the Bible that is a collection of his insights into life. It's called the book of Proverbs. If you read through Proverbs, you will see, man, this guy really kind of understands the way the world is. And indeed, he did. And so here in Ecclesiastes, he's describing life, human life, and his favorite word is vanity. He says that life in this world feels like vanity. And by vanity, he's not talking about like uh, the vanity mirror, you know, that, that, that kind of vanity. Maybe some of you ladies looked in the vanity mirror uh, this morning, and uh, some of you men as well, you know who you are. Uh, to sort of gussy up or whatever. It's not, it's, not a, it's not a self-focus word. It is a word that means futility. In fact, it's tra- it's, the root word means vapor. Life is like vapor, is what he is saying. And if you think about what vapor is like on a cold Indiana morning, you see your, maybe kids will see their, their breath in the cold air, and maybe they'll try to like catch it, right? Oh, look, it's vapor, and they try to catch it. But when you try to catch vapor, it looks like something, but then you realize that it's actually nothing. What do you have when you catch vapor? You have, you have nothing. Solomon says that's what life feels like. It feels empty. It feels like something's missing. All my effort, all my things, all my experiences, in the end, they feel empty. And this is a guy that knows what he's talking about. Uh, because if you know something else about Solomon, he was incredibly wealthy, uh, like legendary type wealth. And the Bible describes the income that he had. It's an amazing amount of money that he had. And so Solomon in Ecclesiastes says, listen, I wanted to find out if there was anything in this world that satisfied, and I took all of my money and I leveraged it pursuing pleasure. And so he goes on this kind of quest, an experiment, to see if maybe something in this world can make you happy. 
And so he says, I bought anything that I wanted, any desire I had in my heart, I pursued it. He was a king and he was wealthy and he could do it. So some of the pleasures that he tried to see if they made him happy, he tried parties, he tried alcohol, he tried laughing and kind of carrying on, you know, sort of that carefree lifestyle. And he checked his heart when he was done and his heart said, vanity, He tried great accomplishments, and he describes some of the incredible buildings and structures and achievements that he had. And on the other side of doing all of that, he asks his heart, are you happy now? And his heart says, vanity. He accumulated great wealth and possessions. And again, if you look into what he had, it's amazing. But on the other side of having this pile of money and gold and all the things, he looked in his heart and he said, are you happy now? And his heart said, vanity. He even tried sexual pleasure. And as an ancient Middle Eastern king, he amassed quite a harem. The Bible tells us that Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Now, I would say he went after this pleasure with gusto. Would you not agree? Thousand women And after all of those experiences, he looks into his heart and he says, are you happy now? And his heart says, vanity, vapor, nothingness, meaningless. None of these things made him happy. And of course, Solomon is saying what Derek said in the video, right? I tried this, I tried that, I had dreams when I was a kid, I accomplished those dreams, I had tons of money, I had women, I had, you know, uh, pleasurable gambling and all the rest. But I had an ache in my heart. Something wasn't right. Something was still missing. That's what Solomon is saying. And there are so many examples of this that, uh, that we know of. I'll give you, uh, here's another example. If you uh, are a sports fan, you know the name Tom Brady. And uh, Tom Brady, after he won his third Super Bowl, he was interviewed on 60 Minutes. And they said, hey, Tom. What does it feel like having won your third Super Bowl ring? And Brady replied, it feels like there's got to be something more than this. And the journalist asked him, what's the answer? And Brady said, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Now we look at that and we're like, really, Tom? I mean, come on, you know, wealthy, Giselle cute kids. I saw an uh, interview. They interviewed like the top 10 PGA golfers, and they said, if you could be anybody except who you are, who would you be? Like nine of the 10 of them said they'd be Tom Brady, okay? So if the PGA golfer, if, if you're the guy the PGA golfers all want to be, you would think, man, you must, you must live an awesome life. It must be amazing to be you. You must be so happy. And yet in an honest moment, he says, I wish, there was, I wish I knew what this was all about. So Tom Brady, Derek, Solomon, they're all saying essentially the same thing, that the human condition is a constant state of frenzy and working and pursuing and accumulating and accomplishing and experiencing. And in all of these things that we're doing all the time, there's this little inside thing that is hoping that maybe this will be the thing that makes me feel whole inside, where everything's right and I'm actually satisfied with my life. But the story of the Bible and the story of human history is that we never are. 
And Solomon moves then from his depression about pleasure and how it doesn't satisfy to depression about death itself. And I'm reading now from chapter 3, verse 16. He says this, Moreover, I saw under the sun, in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. Solomon looks at the world around him and he says, this world's a mess. And he identifies the mess as being injustice. Where you would expect there to be integrity, justice, things being done right, righteousness. Instead, in those very places of society, you find a lack of integrity. You find corruption. You find exploitation. You find sin and wickedness. Apparently, in Solomon's day, there were people who were in power that actually took advantage of the weak. There were politicians who were in positions of authority intended to serve the people, and they used their positions to serve themselves. Politicians in Solomon's day. Apparently in Solomon's day, there were people that were charged with caring for children who abused that opportunity and exploited the children instead. Apparently in Solomon's day, there were courts of justice where bribes and deals were made that allowed the guilty to go free in Solomon's day. And of course, I'm being a little sarcastic in that, right? Because you're like, wait a second, Solomon's day sounds like our day, doesn't it? And indeed it does. I mean, you look in the paper, you look in the world around us, what do we see everywhere? Where there ought to be integrity and justice, instead you find the same old corruption and injustice. I mean, even this week to think about, you would think that you could sit at an airport terminal and get on a plane and fly home and not have some guys roll up luggage and blow up the place, killing men, women, and children. That is injustice. That is not right. And Solomon looks at all the injustice and he says, man, pleasure does not make me happy. And this world that I live in, it is a mess. It is corrupt. It is wicked. So what's the point? Here's Solomon's point. Verse 19. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. The basic statement here is easy to prove, isn't it? In fact, this might be the easiest verse in the whole Bible to prove to be accurate and true. He basically says here, everybody dies. Everybody dies. All human beings die and the animals die. Here's Solomon thinking like a theologian and a philosopher. He's looking at the carcass of the dead animal along the interstate, and he says, look what's happening to that carcass. And then he sees people that he knows that die, and he knows their bodies decay, and he looks at the human carcass, and he looks at the animal carcass, and he says, these two end up exactly the same. They both end up dust. There's no advantage 
They are all the same. We all die. And statistically, we do at an alarming rate. Two people die every second. Two, four, six. Six people just died somewhere in the world. 5,400 people have died since this service began. Death all around us, constant, inevitable. We can't avoid it. And every one of these people that, think of the six people that died as I clicked my fingers, they all were born to somebody that loved them. They grew up maybe going to school. They grew up having dreams about what their life was going to be like. They had friends that they played with. They aspired to things in their life and they pursued them. They might have had loving relationships with a spouse or friend or child. They went to work and they labored and they tried to make something out of their life. They scratched out a living. Whatever it was, all those people live that way. Who do they sound like? They sound like all of us, don't they? They lived just like we live. And six of them died in the three seconds that I snapped my fingers. That is the inevitability of death. And Solomon looks at the fact that we can't avoid death. And he says, we are living a kind of mirage. We are pretending that our lives matter. We're pretending that our dreams and aspirations actually matter. We're pretending that our trophies and our accomplishments and our degrees and our you know, promotions and our accumulations and our relationships matter. But in the end, we look like the roadkill along the road. So in the end, what actually matters? And he says, nothing matters. Nothing matters. We are pretending that our life means something. Dust to dust, he says. We all return to dust. I read yesterday morning, there's a facility up in Detroit that um, people go to and they will freeze you, okay? They cryogenically freeze you. These are not people that have died that they freeze. These are people that are alive and they say, I want to be cryogenically frozen. And the dream that they have is that someday science will advance to a place that can bring them back and the world will be a better place someday. There's a hundred people frozen in that facility up in Detroit, hoping somehow to avoid death, hoping somehow that maybe someday the world will be a better place. And that is, I think, part of the human condition. We all want to think that our lives matter. People go through a midlife crisis when all of a sudden they realize, man, I may have less years ahead of me than I have behind me. And they, you know, buy a sports car or marry a trophy wife or whatever they do to try to stay young. But does it work? No. No. We all die right? We all, not that there's anything wrong with marrying a trophy wife, I just want to say. <laughs> Later in life, there's nothing wrong with that. But we can't avoid what's coming. Tick, tick, tick. I think even gravestones and cemeteries are an attempt on our part for a loved one or even for ourselves to have some lingering statement that says, this is somebody whose life mattered. Like we write, we write their, we don't write their name in soap, we write the names in granite, and we hope that that stone lingers. But why do we die? Really, why, why do we die? 
You know, often people die and, and they'll ask, what's the cause of death? And somebody will say, well, you know, it was cancer or it was a heart attack or it was a car accident or, you know, some other cause of death like that. The Bible says that the real reason we die is not the cancer, it's not the heart attack, it's not the car accident. The real reason we die is because we are all sinners. Now, sin is one of these church words, so let me define it so we all know what we're talking about. Sin means this. It means rebellion against God. It is the raised fist against our Creator, And the Bible says that God made us, that God made us for relationship with Him, and He made us moral, and He put a conscience in our hearts, and He gave parameters for how we are supposed to live. Sin is when mankind says, I don't care about you, I don't give a rip up about you, I don't want to live under your authority, I want to live independent of you, God. I want to live morally free to do whatever I want to do. Adam and Eve were saying, what happens in the garden stays in the garden. Okay? Las Vegas reference there, right? That's the way that, man, but why is that sort of popular? I even see it now in their advertisements during the March Madness game, right? What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. The human heart goes, wow, that sounds fantastic. Because the sin nature craves that. To be free to do whatever I want to do, and there's no accountability, and nobody has to know. That is what sin is at its essence. It is rebellion against God. And the Bible says that this holy God that made us judged mankind for that rebellion against him. And part of that judgment in Genesis 3.19, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust. There you have it. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. And we do, too, every second. 120 a minute, 200,000 people every single day. And Solomon, I mean, he's not, a, he's not a bad guy. He's not a depressing guy. He's just being intellectually honest when he looks at the reality that every human being is going to die, and he looks at every animal dying, and he says, we are no better than them because of how we all end up the same. And what he is essentially saying is that to be human really is to be insignificant. Insignificant. Now, this is going to date some of you. How many of you remember the group Kansas? Okay, I see a few hands going up right now. Okay. The young people are going, those are the old people. <laughs> but the young people don't even know where Kansas is, so... <laughs> Who's really better? So there was this group, this is the 70s, young people, and by that I mean the 1970s. Uh, this is the 70s. There was this, there was this rock group, and they were a pretty popular group. And I actually have a little connection with the group Kansas, because years ago, this is before the internet, um, I had a friend that dared me to call the lead singer, Carrie Livgren, on the phone and to find his personal phone number. So I took it as a challenge, and it's a long story about how I did it, but I ended up calling the Chamber of Commerce in his hometown and calling, I talked to his, I can't remember, his teacher or something. Somehow, I got his personal number and gave him a call, but that's another story. So, <laughs> Carrie Livgren was the, was the lead singer, um, and I think 
lead musician on this, uh, in this group. And they had, they had a couple popular songs. Probably their most iconic song was a song entitled Dust in the Wind. Let me give the lyrics for Dust in the Wind. I close my eyes only for a moment, and the moment's gone. All my dreams pass before my eyes, a curiosity, dust in the wind. All they are is dust in the wind. Same old song, just a drop of water in an endless sea. All we do crumbles to the ground, though we refuse to see, dust in the wind. All we are is dust in the wind. Now don't hang on, nothing lasts forever, but the earth and sky, it slips away. And all your money won't another minute buy, dust in the wind. All we are is dust in the wind. All we are is dust in the wind. Isn't that encouraging? It makes you wonder in the 70s, what were they smoking exactly that somehow combined with this song, people are like, that's awesome, play it again. (laughs) How does that become a great hit? Who buys that album so they can listen over and over again? I don't know. But the, the essence of that message is your life has no meaning. You are at best a piece of dust in the galaxies of the universe. You are at best a grain of sand in the seashores of the world. That's all that you are. And Solomon essentially is saying the same thing. He is not smoking anything. He is being intellectually honest. We all die. And since we all die, we are merely pretending that our lives have significance. We're building castles in the sand. We, we are imagining that somehow my existence and my life has any lasting meaning or value at all. What he essentially is saying is that nothing matters. Nothing matters. Or to quote atheist Bertrand Russell about the human condition, he said, at best we live on the firm foundation of unyielding despair. Now you might be thinking to yourself right now, this doesn't sound like an Easter message to me. (laughs) I thought we were going to hear something hope-giving and uplifting Easter Sunday at Bethel Church. And the reason we are where we are with this is that you have to realize that the real meaning of Easter doesn't start on Easter. It starts with all of these centuries and all of these people, us included, who are living on one planet in the middle of this galaxy, pretending but knowing that we are going to die. 
and all of the attempts that we have to try to build up these things that somehow mean that maybe our life mattered, whether it be, you know, the pharaohs and their, and their pyramids and, and great men who build huge monuments to themselves or whatever it is, presidents, kings, whatever, it is all pretend. It is despair. If we're, if we're honest for a moment, it is despairing to realize that we have one little short life and then we're dead and it doesn't matter after that. And that reality, that tick, 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 six people every three seconds dying, that reality is unavoidable. Which leads us then to a little village 2,000 years ago in the Middle East and a woman, young woman, who had an angel appear to her and the angel said to her, you are going to give birth to a baby and that baby is going to be the son of the Most High God. And she goes, How can this be? For I am a virgin. And the angel describes the supernatural power of God. And in that moment, we realize that this is not a closed universe, that the naturalists and the evolutionists uh, do not have this right. All that is is not what can be measured and seen. It is not merely a material universe. This is a supernatural universe, and there is a God. And the angel said, you're going to give birth to a baby. And by the way, name him Jesus. Do you know what Jesus means? Savior. For he shall save his people from their sins. And indeed, that woman, Mary, had that baby, and that baby grew up and lived the most extraordinary life that has ever been lived. And he said things that today would lock you up in a local institution, primarily this, I am the son of God. Who makes a statement like that? Crazy people do, right? Except with Jesus, he validated the claim by performing supernatural miracles. And by this, I'm not talking about sort of that America's Got Talent, hey, look, this card, whoa. (laughs) We're talking about literally controlling the powers of the weather. We're talking about him showing up. You know, I've said before, Jesus ruined every funeral that he ever went to. Right? He'd show up and they would never make it to the funeral luncheon because Jesus would raise the person from the dead. That kind of power on display is what marked Jesus' life. And it was so obvious that, that, that this was supernatural that even a skeptic religious leader like Nicodemus comes to him in the night and says to him, no man can do what you do if God is not with him. And the miracles established the claim regarding his personhood that he indeed was the Son of God. And we come to find out that he has another name, Emmanuel, that God came and became dust to save dust, to save us. And that leads then to what the cross was all about. Jesus on the cross 
God uses injustice to save us from our sins. Remember back earlier, Solomon, I said, Solomon, he, he bewails the fact that this world, it's, it's a mess, and where you think there would be righteousness, there's wickedness. It doesn't seem right. What God does is God uses that same principle to save us from our sins. What do I mean by that? As Jesus hung on the cross, the Bible says that God takes or took our guilt, our shame, our, the responsibility for the sins that we have committed, and he placed that guilt upon Jesus in his moral account, upon his, upon his person. And God treated Jesus as if he actually was the one who had done those things. The rapist, the blasphemer, the murderer, the thief, the gossip, the slanderer, the hater, all the sins that you can think of, Jesus bears that responsibility. Does that seem right to you? That doesn't seem right to me. That seems like an injustice to me. That where, you would, where there's righteousness, you find unrighteousness. Here's how Paul describes it, 2 Corinthians 5. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Does that sound fair to you? That doesn't sound fair to me. Not to Jesus. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. That sound fair? Doesn't sound fair to me. That he might bring us to God. You want to talk about injustice? How about the holy Son of God bearing guilt for sin? That doesn't seem right. I mean, it's kind of like what we hear about sometimes when, you know, somebody back in the 70s, I'll pick on the 70s again, somebody back in the 70s, you know, is convicted for, of a crime, and they've been in prison for like 30, 40 years, and then they do a DNA test on the old blood sample, and they find out that actually he didn't commit the crime. We just had this in Illinois a few weeks ago. Did you hear about that? The guy walks out, they discovered he didn't commit the crime. We look at that, we say, that's terrible that that guy should have to pay punishment for a sin that he didn't commit. And yet, what do we find Jesus doing but exactly that? He is paying the punishment for sins that he did not commit and doing so willingly. Why? Because we find in the Bible the amazing truth that apparently God loves dust. God loves rebellious dust. God has a plan to save dust and it involved him becoming dust to save us so jesus paid the penalty of our sin on the cross so that we could be freed from the cause of the condemnation of death in the first place which was our sin but what about the resurrection Right here we are, Easter, we need to talk about this, and we ought to, because this is the rest of the story. What about the resurrection? The Bible tells us, and we have four gospel accounts and, and, and other eyewitnesses that talk about the fact that Jesus died on the cross, and that when he died on the cross, he really died. He was human, he was in a body, and he actually died. He didn't swoon, he didn't pretend, he wasn't faking it, he died. The Romans authenticated it. The centurion and the governor authenticated it. We know that it was friends that took him off the cross, took him to a nearby garden, prepared his body for burial, and buried him. 
Now, if he was still alive, do friends bury living friends? I don't call those friends, right? That's not a friend that I want. They were Jesus' friends. They were around his body the whole time. They said, he's dead. He's dead. And they buried him. And the Bible says that three days after his burial, on that very first Easter morning, at first dawn, there was an earthquake. And the stone was thrown aside. And Jesus Christ left the tomb bodily alive. And he began to appear to disciples who were predisposed to not believing in the resurrection. This was not a conspiracy. This wasn't sort of everyone, oh yeah, he's going to be raised from that. They weren't expecting it. In fact, it took them a while to kind of come to grips with the fact that he is alive. He appeared to them in the upper room. We see that his resurrection was physical. He ate food. He said, hey, Thomas, come and touch me and see. See that scar right there? That's a real scar. You want to touch it? Doubting Thomas. He was bodily raised from the dead. And he appeared over and over and over again to many, many people. This is not a little group of guys again smoking something. This isn't a little group of guys coming up with a theory. Many, many people, 500 people at one time Jesus appeared to alive. And one reason we know that all these people really believe that he was resurrected is that many of them gave their life for that message. To quote Pascal, he said, I believe those martyrs that get their throats cut. And many of those that said, he's alive, he's alive, died for that truth. But what does the resurrection mean exactly? And how does it help us? Listen to the Apostle Paul, he gives the meaning. Behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and the mortal body must put on immortality. This is resurrection. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Now that may sound confusing, but essentially what he is saying is this, is that on the cross, Jesus conquered sin, but in the resurrection, Jesus conquered that thing that had hung over us like an ominous cloud throughout human history, namely the fact that we die all the time. He conquered death. The Bible says that is our final enemy. And by doing that, he conquers death's ultimate claim upon us. It was like a prison where Jesus breaks the bars and out he comes. And here's the rest of us. Hey, look, he got out. And we all go running after him. Because he got out, we all get out. His resurrection was the first of many, many to come. So that for those who believe... We are not dust in the wind. We are not, in the end, insignificant. We are dust 
that is awaiting the fullness of final resurrection and that final glorified body and living back with our Creator forever. It is life eternal, is the gift that God grants to those who believe. And we find out then that the opposite of what Ecclesiastes says is that our lives actually do matter. Apart from Jesus, they don't matter. We're just dust. But now, by faith in Jesus and with the hope of eternal life, all my life matters. All my relationships matter. What I do with my life matters. My vocation matters. I have an answer to the pains and the wrongs that have been done against me. Everything matters because Jesus was resurrected from the dead. Listen to this commentator. I love this quote. The message of the resurrection is that the world matters, that the injustices and pains of this present world must now be addressed with the news that healing, justice, and love have won. If Easter means Jesus Christ is only raised in a spiritual sense, then it is only about me and finding a new dimension in my personal spiritual life. But if Jesus Christ is truly risen from the dead, Christianity becomes good news for the whole world. News which warms our hearts precisely because it isn't just about warming hearts. Easter means that in a world where injustice, violence, and degradation are endemic, God is not prepared to tolerate such things. And that we will work and plan with all the energy of God to implement victory over Jesus of Jesus over them all. So that God's final answer to the critics who say, you don't care about us. If you cared about us, you wouldn't let there be the evil in the world, or you wouldn't let somebody in my life do that thing that they did to me, or you wouldn't allow holocausts or hurricanes or tornadoes or crises and catastrophes. God, if you cared about us, you wouldn't have allowed all that stuff. And God's answer is this, I care and I sent my son. And I resurrected him from the dead. And now there is hope in this world. There is hope. Hope, real hope. That death is not the final thing for me. That that gravestone is not the last thing said about me. Here's what Jesus said standing at the grave of his friend Lazarus. Lazarus was dead. He's talking to Lazarus' sister Martha. And he says the most extraordinary thing. Here's what he says. Standing at the grave, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Who says something like that? And why would we believe him? If he's resurrected from the dead, that's a statement that you can take to the bank. I am the resurrection and the life. And we find that Jesus' resurrection then de-ecclesiastes the truth here. Like I think if we could go back and say, hey Solomon, as he's writing chapter 3, he's scribbling away, hey Solomon, Jesus was resurrected from the dead. Solomon would go, what? Oh, well. And you wouldn't find Ecclesiastes in the Bible. But he didn't know about resurrection. But we do. Jesus has come. He was resurrected from the dead. And friend, I want you to see in that statement the condition. Whoever whoever believes in me. And we see in the words of Jesus that the resurrection, 
is not just an ethereal concept that you can kind of use to sort of feel good about yourself. We come to find out that to be saved is not to go to an Easter service and sing Easter songs and sit with your family or do whatever you're going to do today. This doesn't save anybody. That in order for the saving benefits of what Jesus has done on the cross and in his resurrection to be applied to you in your life, you yourself must believe. And that belief is a trusting in Jesus and what he did for your sin, an acknowledgement that you yourself are a sinner, that the problem with the world is you and your heart and mine as well. I'm in this as well. To acknowledge that I am a sinner and to put all of my hope in what Jesus has done. Not in the accumulating of money, not in the experiences that maybe God will give to me, not in any of the materialistic things that the world pushes us towards. We know those are empty. They, they lead to nowhere. But in Jesus to find the satisfaction of the longing of the human heart which longs to be restored to relationship with its creator. That's what Jesus provides. And only he provides.